Welcome to the J. Kim Show, Hong Kong's first dedicated podcast on investing in Asia. It's no secret that Asia is home to some of the most dynamic, innovative, and game-changing companies in the world. Join us as we survey the land to find the most profitable investment opportunities that will allow you to capitalize off this next wave of wealth creation. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced with the goal of providing actionable insights with every single episode. And now, on to the show. Today's show guest is Grant Williams. Grant is the editor of Things That Make You Go Hmm, which is one of the most popular and widely read financial publications in the world. He's a senior advisor to Matterhorn Asset Management based out of Switzerland, a portfolio and strategy advisor to Volpe's Investment Management in Singapore, and is also one of the co-founders of Real Vision, an online on-demand finance channel showcasing the brightest minds in finance. Please enjoy my conversation with Grant. All right. Hey, Grant. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, We're very happy to have you on, uh, especially uh, given some of the great work that you do. Um, So thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, Maybe for the audience that uh, hasn't heard of who you are and uh, what you do for a living, uh, maybe you can give us a little bit of background. Sure. um, I've been a a trader, equity and bond trader for more than 30 years now. Let's just leave it at that. And uh, all around the world. (laughs) worked in Asia and the US and Europe and Australia and Singapore. Um, and uh, right now I have, I have two main roles at the moment. One of them is I write a letter called Things That Make You Go Hmm, which I've been writing for, I guess, eight years now. Uh, and I'm one of the co-founders of a company called Real Vision, which is a, an online on-demand uh, finance platform where we, like you, we travel around the world and we interview the smartest people we can find, which is, uh, which is always a lot of fun. You got what you guys have done over at Real Vision is is really groundbreaking and uh, disruptive. I appreciate it. Thank you. And and it's great. I mean, it's it's uh, for anyone listening. Uh, absolutely, go and check out some of the. It's just so so high quality, um, and and the speaker the speakers are just so high quality as well. So well, I'd love to hear about how you became an investor. Uh, you know, I mean, the it's funny. I, I like asking. Uh, different speakers about how they're they started off their journey and a lot of times it's it's uh, less intentional more of kind of oh i just kind of ended up you know doing this sort of thing and then it led me down this path uh, i'd love to hear uh, a quick uh, story on, on how you got into investing yeah sure mine was uh, mine was very deliberate i i had a i had an uncle harry who was in financial markets who was my hero i just thought this guy was just the coolest guy and I had no idea what he did, but I wanted to be like Uncle Harry. And <laughs> out, he, uh, he was a foreign exchange trader. So that's whatever foreign exchange was, I had no idea what it was, but that's mm-hmm. what I wanted to be. And uh, so I, I kind of educated myself about finance and um, actually went into equity markets instead of uh, foreign exchange. But, uh, you know, I mean, literally, I wanted to be like Uncle Harry. And, uh, and it's been... 30, as I said, 30 plus years, uh, mostly in equities, but also some time in, in, in bonds. But, but it was really, it was just seeing one of these larger than life characters who was super fast and you know, super smart uh, and always seemed to have an answer for everything. I kind of figured, you know what, I, I want to be that. And of course, when you get into the business, you find out that you don't have an answer for anything. You just have to figure it all out when you go along. So he, <laughs> I think Uncle Harry pulled the wool over my eyes, frankly. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, absolutely. So uh, what is your what, sort of uh, investment framework or, or, or methodology? Um, I imagine you're, you're still an investor today. Uh, and, you know, people's styles change somewhat over time as they learn more about investing. I think uh, if you come into the business with, say, a mentor like an Uncle Harry or, or, or that teaches you specifically about effects or something like that, 
um, you might be geared or, or slant, tilted toward, towards uh, going that method. Uh, just curious on what your framework is. Yeah, you know, one of the, one of the best things that happened to me uh, in hindsight in my career was, you know, I started work shortly before the 87 crash. And so I was in the Japanese market at the time, which were just going up every day. So we were in this crazy blow-off phase of the, of the Nikkei. It was, it, was just, it was crazy. I mean, this, uh, the markets would go up every day. So you, you, you've got this kind of otherworldly sense that nothing could ever go wrong. So to, you know, to come in one morning and find the market fall 22% in a day, having that happen so fast, when I really didn't know what I was doing, you know, I was kind of figuring it out as I went along. But to have that happen to you and to sit there shell-shocked thinking, well, what just happened, mm -hmm. was, a, was a phenomenal lesson to learn. And I, and I think having, having trade what, in hindsight, I realized were egregiously overvalued markets, to see what can happen to those sort of markets, you know, I, I think I just evolved almost naturally into a value investor. You know, I, I, I look for value. I look for things that if the market does get cut in half, I don't mind owning. So that's really kind of guided my investment over the last 30 years, which is why today, you know, this, this environment we're in, I find a very difficult one to navigate because I struggle to find value. And, um, you know, I, I gradually sold all my equity positions and I've sold the last ones, I guess, almost a year and a half ago now. Um, and I've sat in cash and some, and some bonds and I've got a decent allocation to gold because I've been expecting to see a correction and some value emerge, but it hasn't happened yet. And, and, and I'm comfortable with that. You know, I, don't, I don't lose sleep sitting there in cash. I don't feel like I'm missing out uh, on a rally because I just don't see the value there. It's funny when you're, you're describing the, uh, the, mark, the Japanese market, I had to, to think for a second, wait, are you talking about our current equity market? Or are you talking no, about no, no, I'm talking, about, I'm talking about the twin bubbles in, in the late 80s. Exactly. So it's very uncanny because all the same, all the same, exact same ways you're describing it could very well be used for our current situation right now. Um, I, I, I tend to tilt towards value investing as well. Um, and I think that it's an it's a important mindset. I tell people when they first start out learning how to invest that it's always a good foundation to build uh, and just to be able to to kind of wrap your head around that investment psychology um, sort of differentiating yourself from Mr. Market understanding sort of risk reward and greed and fear and how mm -hmm. a lot of times uh, you know a, a large pr proportion of the market uh, is just behavioral it's all psychology right so yeah. being able to sift through that is uh, is quite important well I think, I think you know to me the, the thing about value investing is it gives you a margin for error. If you're wrong about the timing, you still own something of value. Mm. You know, if you're a momentum trader, if you're, if you're buying the fangs now because you think you can flip them to somebody else and you get the timing wrong, you're flat out wrong. And what you own is overpriced and its value is a long way below where it's trading. So I, so I, I just like having that margin of safety that you know, if, if, if everything goes to hell, this is a good company throwing off decent cash. It's got a sound balance sheet. And there's value in that if I hold on to it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and part of it, I guess, also has to do with the investor's personality. Um, you know, I mean, there's a lot of very successful momentum traders that have made a lot of money in the last 18 months oh, sure. where, where we've been sitting in cash. The value can't be sitting in cash, sitting on their hands. Um, and if you can sleep at night as a momentum trader, you know, I mean, it's often said that the most, a large amount of money is made in the eighth and ninth and late innings of a, a, a long bull market. So. Um, yeah, I mean, if you can sleep at night, uh, you know, with your yeah, trailing stops, then by, by <laughs> all means, right? 
um, I, I tend to, uh, to, to favor your approach. Uh, I'm completely happy sitting in cash uh, at this point. So let's actually talk about, this is a bigger picture uh, that we've, we've kind of uh, delved into. Um, we're, we're, we're at a very interesting time in history, uh, you know, with the sort of uh, abnormal interest rates uh, that have essentially caused uh, somewhat of a, a, a a problem in the markets as I see it um, and as, as I'm sure you do as well. Uh, and against that backdrop, there's also this larger theme of sort of de-dollarization. I'd love to hear your thoughts just on, uh, without going down too much of a, a rabbit hole about, uh, about the dollar, uh, but you do, you do put out a lot of good work um, uh, on your, on your uh, newsletter and I've, I've heard you speak about sort of um, this, this, big shift that's happening in the background. So maybe we can start there and, and give your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I think um, what, what, what you've seen for the last sort of three, almost four years now, if you've paid close attention, there is a fundamental shift going on in, in the global monetary order. And uh, you know what, what began with Bretton Woods um, post-World War II and which ended when Nixon closed the gold window in 1971, you've had this pure fiat regime where the dollar has been unparalleled in its hegemony. It's been the world's reserve currency. It's had primacy the entire time. And it's been very, very strong. Now, what we've seen in the last you know, 10 years or so, since 08, certainly, um, is this increasing reliance on inflated balance sheets, the printing of money, the expansion of the US debt. Um, all this has kind of gone to undermining confidence in the dollar. Now, it, it, it maintains its confidence simply as a lot of people refer to it as a cleanest, dirty shirt. But there's a new uh, regime emerging if you look very, very closely. And what's happening is um, the reason, the main reason behind the dollar's primacy has been the petrodollar system in which the Saudis agreed to only sell oil in dollars back in 1971 in return for arms sales and protection. And, and doing that, uh, forcing everybody to buy oil in dollars, meant every country in the world had to have, certainly all the oil importers, had to have a healthy balance sheet of uh, FX reserves, mostly denominated in dollars. Now, in recent years, in the last sort of, say, since about 2013, uh, the Chinese particularly have begun negotiating a lot of contracts to sell, uh, to buy, sorry, oil in Yuan from various countries. And they've started off with the likes of Russia, Iran, Turkey, none of whom are particularly great friends of the U.S., um, and recently they've started to court Saudi Arabia as well. Now, China's become in that time the largest importer of oil. Right. So every oil exporter has a choice at this particular moment in time, and that is, do you want to maximize your, your sale price, or do you want to maximize your market share in the biggest importer of the world? And, and clearly, judging by a lot of these uh, agreements that are being signed, the exporters are looking to maximize their, their market share in China. The missing component in this um, is the gold market. And if you look at what's happening in the Shanghai Gold Exchange, where uh, you can buy gold in Yuan and take delivery, you've finally got this link in place whereby you can sell oil to the Chinese in right. Yuan, take your Yuan and buy gold. So you can actually exchange oil for gold once again, which bypasses the petrodollar system, which can cause a lot of problems for, for the US. You know, for example, uh, China has 26% of GDP in FX reserves, most of which denominated in dollars. The U.S., by virtue of being able to print dollars for oil, has 0.6%. So the, the natural uh, effect of this is going to be for China to draw down its foreign exchange reserves because it simply won't need to hold as many. 
that has knock-on effects for the dollar, for the treasury market. I mean, you can see where it goes from there. I mean, that's it. In a nutshell, there's, there's a lot more to it than that, but that's kind of the broad strokes. And this is something that, uh, again, like you say, you have to look closely. Uh, mainstream, really mainstream media is certainly not going to be proliferating this type of news, uh, but it's out there. You just have to know where to look and do the research and read a little bit about history and, and uh, kind of take a more, uh, inspect, you know, it's, uh, more analytical lens uh, to this sort, of, uh, this sort of backdrop. Now, uh, Grant, I want to talk about, um, so, you know, again, we've, we've had uh, a, almost a decade of uh, sort of artificially suppressed interest rates. And we're, we're entering a very interesting time where we're starting to see a little bit of uh, growth pick up and, and stabilize in the U.S. Um, and when inflation starts to, to pick up, we're going to be in the kind of backed into a corner because at some point, the rate of interest rates rises or hikes that needs to tame inflation is uh, also going to uh, not be sustainable uh, for servicing debt payments uh, of the U.S. Treasury uh, holdings around the world. So, you know, I'm, I'm curious to hear what, you know, how you think this is all going to play out. I mean, this is a long time coming, but it seems like uh, the debt keeps going up and uh, people just keeping, keep kicking the can down the road. Um, and we just saw, uh, was it Fisher, who was, uh, who was one of the more hawkish uh, members of the Fed. He, he, he bailed, jumped ship. So it's, it's really interesting to see how long they're going to prolong this. It, it is. It's, look, it's, uh, it, it's been fascinating to watch, and it's gone on a lot longer than I thought it would. You know, the analogy I had was that the world's central bankers were gradually backing themselves into a corner, um, and the markets were looking at them and were waiting to see their shadow on the wall because we couldn't see how far back the wall was. But once we saw the shadow, we'd know right. they were getting close to that wall. And I, I've had the sense for a year or so that, that we're starting to see those shadows. And to your point, I think you know, everything you say is absolutely right. That They're in this position now where they have to try and raise rates because I think they realized that with an expansion that's 98 months long in the US, chances are we are going to find a recession sooner rather than later. Um, they need some ammunition in the gun when that happens. They need to be able to cut rates. But you're absolutely right. If they push rates too high, uh, it's going to break the economy. And you know, every expansion always ends with, a, with a one tightening too many. And, and it'll happen again this time. What happens, I suspect, will be actually pretty nasty because the amount of debt that's been allowed to build up, the last recession in 08 was truncated. It didn't, it didn't get to run its course because of all the desperate measures that were put in place. Um, so I do worry. I, I worry about what happens when, uh, when the next recession comes. And, and the, the other problem, which is rather a difficult one, is if, if we say that 2% growth in the US, for example, is now good, you know, before that would have been pretty poor. But if we accept that 2% from here on in is actually going to be pretty decent, which I think, given what we've seen the last 10 years, I think you can make a case that 2% growth is actually going to be okay going forward. Now, if that's the case and 2% growth is what we're going to see in a decent year, then equity markets are way, way, way overvalued. They do not represent uh, a world of 2% growth. So whichever way you look at this, some pain is going to, be have, is going to have to be felt. Um, is it the bond market first? Is it the equity market first? Or most worryingly, is it both? And, and this is the first time, certainly in my career, I could see how it could be both. And that would be, uh, that would be really painful. Yeah, it's, it's frightening uh, to, to see what's going to happen. And, and again, 
it's one of these things where I, I feel like uh, if we'd had this conversation a year ago, we'd be talking, we'd, we'd have the exact same conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's and nothing's changed. And um, so, uh, you know, for uh, just to, from an industry sort of talk perspective, if you're an active fund manager, um, you're kind of, it's strange because you're forced to, to produce returns, uh, especially if you're not like a, just a long only or, or a, a relative uh, benchmarked fund. If you're sort of a, you know, absolute return type fund or a hedge fund, this type of thing. You're forced to print returns, and and yet if you're if you're sitting there like like we are uh, with a value tilt, and you're saying there's nothing I can buy right now, but my investors want me to to produce returns, it's it's very difficult. It's a hard hard job to do, and uh, and it kind of almost compromises uh, some some of your value systems if you are a value investor. Another another question I wanted to ask you, Grant, and on your opinion on is um, and speaking of sort of this artificial suppression of interest rates and as we come into uh, potentially a normalization of, of monetary policy um, and the the sort of fallout that might ensue thereafter one of the curious things that market participants have have talked about recently is volatility and the VIX and 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 how that as well seems to just have been has been suppressed uh, for whatever reason. And um, I want to just sort of pick your brain on that and see what your your thoughts on that, because I think it has a lot of people scratching their heads. Yeah, it, look, look, it does. Uh, and again, a lot of it is is momentum-based. I mean, look, we've seen that shorting the VIX has been, I think, I think it's actually been the most profitable strategy for the last five or six years now. It has. And so what happens? You get people herding into the short VIX strategies, which... Uh, you know, it's, it's fine when it lasts, but the problem with volatility by its very definition is that it's volatile. And so you can, you can short it and you can edge down, you can chip away at profits, chip away at profits, but the day you're wrong, it doesn't reverse two or three points. You know, it, go, it goes from nine to 29. Um, and you can give up all your gains in a heartbeat in this. And so, you know, it, it, it is, it's a head scratcher because the world has never seemed a more dangerous place, but people people equate financial market volatility with real world events. And that's not really how these things work. But, but, you know, we are trading way below the norms. um, And it's not so much that you, you know, you should go long volatility here. We we may remain around these levels, but shorting volatility at all time lows is an incredibly dangerous thing to do. So, so I think the people who are late to the game or who are, you know, there's a story in the, um, in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times maybe, about a, a, an ex-manager of Target who uh, sat at home day trading short volatility and turned half a million dollars into $12 million. And now he wants to raise a hedge fund. So when you hear, you know, when you hear stories like that, you realize that we're close to something breaking. Um, you know, when, when guys like that are, and look, hey, good luck to it. I mean, if you can turn half a million bucks into $12 million, fantastic. Uh, and if you can walk away with it in your pocket, even better. Yeah. But when you hear stories like that where guys are being attracted to short volatility because it's a winning strategy, that's a very, very dangerous sign. And, and I, I don't think there's a more dangerous thing, uh, asset class, to, to make that bet in than volatility. I love, I love hearing those stories, actually, because it, <laughs> they, uh, they have to make me laugh. I mean, uh, you hear a lot of those right now with this whole crypto craze that's happening. It's yeah. kind of the same thing, you know. I, I, I think that's... 
uh, you like the one or two people out there that actually got lucky. And we don't even know, like you said, if they actually uh, colored up, so to speak, or if they could walk away with that type of profits. I mean, it could all just be paper um, gains, but um, they, those stories always make me laugh. Um, Grant, so in 2008-ish, I believe, after the financial crisis, uh, it, you, you started your uh, newsletter blog, Things That Make You Go Boom. Which, uh, for the audience out there, it's it's one of the best uh, you know markets newsletters out there that comes from sort of a it's an institutional grade product because I know you have a lot of institutional readers as well, but it's also very geared towards uh, just you know the private investor as well, which is I think why it's such a strong product and um, and it's done so well. Um, maybe you could talk us talk to us a little bit about what. What made you want to start writing that to begin with? <laughs> what, what made me want to start writing? I have no idea. I, I must be crazy. But, you know, it was, <laughs> uh, it, it, look, it's, it's to, to our previous conversation about volatility. We live in, in times that are bewildering often. Uh, there are all kinds of things happening. There, there, there's so much news and so little information. And I wanted to try and, and cut out some of the noise, get to some of the things that I thought were were... You know, confusing, but you know the title of the, the letter suggests it's it's really just things that kind of make me think. And you know, I talk about everything from bonds for asset classes, bonds quantities. Uh, I'll talk about different countries. I've written about Australia and Switzerland and Japan and all kinds of things. But but it's it's really an attempt to kind of pick out a theme, a story uh, every couple of weeks and walk through the kind of absurdities of it. I wrote recently about the, the Swiss Frank, uh, the Swiss National Bank's balance sheet. You know, the Swiss National Bank is now one of the biggest hedge funds in the world, owning $80 billion of U.S. stocks. And just to try and explain to people how that's come about, why, why they've done it, and, and what potentially it might mean uh, to the broader markets. Uh, and I try and do it in, a, in an, as, a, as accessible a way as I can with some humor and just make it easy to read. But, but it's, you know, I'm, I'm very serious about everything I write. Right. But I try and do it in, in, in as entertaining a way as I can because it's, it's, this, this stuff's hard. It's complicated to get your head around. And so if you can lighten it up and simplify it, I think it's in everybody's best interest. I think that's, the, that's one of the keys of, uh, of newsletter writing. I think that, uh, you know, if, uh, coming from institutional backgrounds, we've seen a lot of uh, that sort of stock sort of research that gets put out. And a lot of it is... is um, it's quite frankly not good, first of all. <laughs> Second of all, it's just really dry. And it's just, oh, you know, it's like reading these, it's, it's almost like reading industry reports where it's just so boring. Um, and that's why I love your newsletter, uh, which I subscribe to. And it's, it's, um, it's just, it's like a real person that is looking at real markets in just a, a regular way, you know, not some, trying to sound more complicated or, or sophisticated, which often research analysts on the sell side try to do, right? So... Um, well, thank you. I appreciate that. So in addition to that, uh, you know, Real Vision, like we mentioned at the beginning, is, is also a great, great uh, product that you guys, um, that you guys, have, you and Rob put together. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that as well. And what um, it, it sounds like it's on a similar vein that uh, when you're, you might have been feeling the need to, to, to voice your opinions on the markets when you started your blog and your newsletter. In the same way, uh, you know, it seems like Real Vision was a, a way that you guys could uh, express uh, sort of uh, market views, but 
in a better way that is not clouded by the mainstream media. Yeah, the, the, the idea behind Real Vision was actually very, very simple. You know, Raoul and I uh, were both kind of disappointed in the way that 2008 was, was portrayed in the mainstream media and that no one saw it coming. It was a complete bolt out of the blue, which, which was not the case. It just simply wasn't true. There were plenty of people that saw it coming. There were plenty of people warning of these things. Um, but those stories don't play very well, so they didn't really get much airing. And Raoul and I have been around for a long time and we've worked with some incredible people around the world. And we just thought, you know, why don't we set something up and give these guys a chance to talk not without commercial breaks, without interruptions, but just talk. Let's talk honestly and openly about finance and pick the brains of the smartest guys in the world. And really, that's what we set out to do. So we, we, we flew around the world and we sat down with household name hedge fund managers like you know, Carl Bass and Hugh Hendry and Jim Rogers and Jeff Gundlach. But, but not for three minutes. We sat down for an hour, uh, maybe 90 minutes sometimes, and really dug into not just, we didn't want to ask them for a stock pick because there's no real value in that. Because right. again, it's like everybody they're guessing. But if we could learn how they invest, the framework they've built over the years, some of the mistakes they've made and the lessons they've learned from them, you know, we felt that would be incredibly valuable for, for an audience. And not just from the Calabasas of the world, but from unknown guys that, that fly under the radar doing brilliant things incredibly successfully, but no one ever gets a chance to hear from them. So that's what we've done. And the, and the response has been just overwhelming. I mean, people, people really enjoy the chance to get an hour with these guys to really dig into to what makes them tick. And, and uh, the feedback we've had from the audience has just been uh, overwhelming. Yeah, it's definitely disruptive and uh, groundbreaking. I mean, you know, it's like you say, the, uh, you see the, the two-minute, three-minute clips on CNBC here and there, and, and you never really get anything out of that. It's, it's, it's pointless. I mean, you see them sitting up there, and it's like, okay, this guy's a guru. He knows what he's talking about. But unless you go to, like, a conference like a Sone or these types yeah. of conferences, which are extremely, extremely expensive, or if you could even get into them. Uh, so um, I, I think it's... it's uh, it's definitely the way forward. So I, I, I enjoy the content there. Um, and as far as, um, well, you know, the funny thing is I, I was watching a, uh, I was watching a movie. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called a money monster. It was like George Clooney. It was, like, <laughs> it was basically like Jim Cramer, uh, but yeah. it kind of like, it kind of, you know, encapsulated what mainstream media is, especially in the financial publishing industry uh, media um, and how much of a, farce it's actually become that a lot of people just they don't they don't realize this you know you have 350 million people sitting in america you know i don't know what percentage of them actually are savvy but it's very small uh so you have a large portion of that population sitting there just watching the tube trying to get their you know stock pick recommendations and they're only being fed one message right and it's it, it it's it's almost like they're 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 getting fed the, the, the party theme or whatever it is, you know? Um, so uh, it's, and I think that that model is changing because of the internet, which is, and you guys are, are sort of first movers in that. So I think that's refreshing and it's very valuable for, for investors as well, um, as well as the education part of it. Like you said, you know, it's not just, oh, what's your best stock pick? It's let's look into your, your methodology. Let's go inside your yeah. brain. And yeah, it was important to us to, to get that information. Uh, Grant, thanks so much for sort of uh, taking the time today. I want to, our last sort of uh, topics that I want to talk about are, are about Asia and about China. And, um, you know, you do, you've, you've worked obviously in the region uh, for a number of years. Japan, you mentioned earlier. I know you spent some time in Hong Kong. 
and you spent some time in Singapore now consulting with some, advising some, uh, some hedge funds and, and this sort of thing. Um, maybe you could give us your outlook on Asia, China specifically, you know, I mean, China is on, on every investor's radar. Uh, at, this mo at this point, I think anyone that's smart enough has that China on their radar and trying to figure out how they can have access exposure to it, how they can play China. Um, so maybe you could give some thoughts on that. Yeah, look, I, th I think you have to have China on, on your radar. It's the second biggest economy in the world. It's, uh, it's impossible to ignore. You know, the problem with China is the problem that there's always been with China and that there's just enough opacity to not really know what's going on underneath. It's such a huge, disparate country, disparate economy. So you have to pick and choose where you invest very carefully. I mean, I, I have severe concerns about the shadow banking system, about this enormous amount of credit that's been pumped into the system in China. Um, and, and I think when that goes, it will be of a magnitude like which we haven't seen before. But that's not to say it couldn't last a lot longer because there is that opacity and there is that sense that the Chinese can do things perhaps that um, the other countries can't get away with at this point in time. So, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm very cautious about China, uh, very cautious indeed. I think broader Asia, I think there are some fantastic uh, investment opportunities, places like the Philippines, I think is a great investment opportunity. Um, you know, some of the smaller markets, Vietnam, I still think you can find value there. Um, uh, Indonesia as well. There, there, there are great micro stories on an Asia level. The, the big problem that uh, I think you have to keep one eye on uh, when you're looking at Asia is the dollar. It's as simple as that. If the dollar turns around and strengthens again, I, you know, I, I think it may do in the short term. But uh, you know, I've gone from a dollar bear to a dollar bull, and I'm back to bearish on the dollar now over the longer term. But it looks at the moment from a technical perspective that we may be setting up for a bounce in the dollar, uh, which is going to put pressure on Asia. Yeah. Um, but but you know, as goes the dollar, so goes Asia. So if, if we do can get to see continued weakness in the dollar, I think it's going to be a fantastic tailwind for Asia. That's my base case uh, you know, over the next year, but it won't, certainly won't be without, um, w without its you know, counter rally. So, so I'm, I'm watching for those very, very carefully. Interesting. Um, what you say about China is so true. You know, I mean, I've, I've been in Hong Kong for 12 years now and uh, I've, I've had my fair share of, of, uh, of pitfalls and, and investing mistakes, uh, particularly in, like you say, China is, is China is such a huge country, first of all. So even within China, the different regions behave differently. So it's hard to just say China and blanket it's yeah. the country like that. Um, but again, you know, the, the market reacts very differently. You have a, a strange market where a lot of companies don't trade on fundamentals, which makes it very difficult as an investor. Uh, and then on the other hand, you have a, a, a stock market with, whose participants are 80 plus percent retail. Um, yeah. So in theory, the institutions should be able to generate alpha and take advantage of that. But they oftentimes still struggle because none of them have actually figured it out. So it's like you say, I... I shy away from people that claim to be China experts because I've actually, even people that have been working there, Chinese locals, they, and the, the real ones that are on the ground, there's even them, there's very few that actually know what's going on. Um, so yeah, my piece of advice usually to investors is, um, well, first of all, you try to do your work, uh, but also don't, don't think that it's uh, something that you can just, uh, like any other market, trade uh, with, with that level of understanding because it's, it's just a, a, a very different monster. That said, I'm, I'm long-term very bullish on China, and I think that 
the second largest economy in the world, which is on pace to be the first at some point. Um, and if you take into account this, this de-dollarization theme that we talked about previously, I think um, you know, China definitely has a, a, a place on the, the global stage uh, and they're, it's, it's, they're, coming, they're, com they're, they're rising. So uh, it's certainly something to, to look out for. Um, uh, Grant, any final sort of uh, thoughts on um, markets, say, from here and six months out? I mean, like I said, if we had this chat a year ago, we probably have had the same conversation. Um, any sort of data points that you're, you're watching closely that might end this bull market rally? Well, look, I, this, this time of year, for whatever reason, you know, seasonality, whether you believe in it or not, it, it has been shown to be incredibly important. And September, October are the two months of the year that you really want to try and get through um, before you can kind of sound any kind of all clear. And I think, you know, the debt ceiling, they've, they've got through that, but it, it's just pushed it back into December. Um, I, you know, I, I, I'm very nervous about the next couple of months. There, there, are, there are a bunch of things uh, happening. Fisher stepping down, I don't think is a good sign at all. Generally speaking, when guys in positions like that step down out of the blue, it normally means they've seen something that they really don't want to be a part of. Uh, <laughs> you know, if, you, if you think about the timing of Alan Greenspan stepping down, uh, you know, a, a matter of days shy of becoming the longest serving Fed chairman, that, that was a, a big heads up to a lot of people. Uh, so I, I, I'm, very, I'm nervous about September, October. I think um, uh, they could be some very tricky months when people come back. It's been the quietest summer I think I've yeah. ever seen. Absolutely. Uh, and when volume comes back, volatility could come back. And from these low levels and with all the things going on in the world, I, 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 if I'm an investor, I'm maximum cautious the next couple of months until I see North Korea die down, you know, until I see uh, volatility find a level, uh, until I see the kind of wobbles in the bond market settle down. I, I just, again, going back to that value bent of mine, I don't see value right now. I see a lot of potential pitfalls. And I'd rather just sit quietly and, and watch until I, I see a point where I'm more comfortable uh, jumping in. And I don't think that's going to happen in September, October, something. I, I, I agree with you 100%. Uh, so, Grant, thanks so much for your time today. It's been uh, great chatting with you and, uh, and hearing your views on the market and such. Um, is, what, what, are you, what, are you, what are the exciting things you're working on uh, these days? Anything uh, in particular personally or for uh, either your blog or Real Vision or any interesting projects that you'd like to draw the audience's attention to? Yeah, look, we've, we've just uh, launched the second season of our free podcast, uh, Adventures in Finance. You can find that on iTunes. So it's a Real Vision podcast. Um, and, and I would just suggest your, your readers take a look at Real Vision, realvision.com. Uh, if you want to check out uh, my letter, that's T-T-M-Y-G-H. Uh, that's things that make you go, hmm, dot com. Um, and if you've got any questions, just uh, drop us. I, I'm on Twitter, at T-T-M-Y-G-H, uh, and you can find Real Vision there too, at Real Vision. And you know, we're just trying to, trying to broaden that financial community and, and try and get as many people access to as much information as possible. I think that's, that's so crucial right now. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Grant. Appreciate it. And uh, look forward to uh, catching up with you soon. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Jake. All right. Take care. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. 
All of the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com. Come back often and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next exciting episode of The J. Kim Show. As always, I'd love to hear your questions, comments, or future guest suggestions. You can find me on Twitter at jkimmer. That's J-A-Y-K-I-M-M-E-R. See you in the next episode.